risen. He is alive. Let us remember these words, God, and let them sink deep into the deepest part of our hearts and our souls. And that our lives, every second, every breath, would be lived in that reality. And that you would strengthen us against the things that attempt to draw us away from you, the temptations and sins that easily entangle us. Give us strength and give us wisdom to turn the other way, to go after Christ who saved us and gave his life to pay the penalty for our sins. And I pray that as we sit and we listen to your word, I pray that you would speak through Pastor Michael. And thank you for your grace and and the privilege of hearing your word preached. I pray that we would listen well. I pray that we would grow in obedience. And I pray that your grace would be evident in our lives and that your Holy Spirit would give us the strength and grace to follow Jesus at all costs. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Wow, that was great. I'm wore out. That was good. I was uh, joking a little bit with Josh Williams, who's our worship and arts director. I was joking a little bit with him before the service. I asked him if we could put a little thing down here on the bottom of the screen that showed the, the chief score as the game was on, you know, this morning. And I was, as I was thinking about that, I thought on that last song, it'd just be great when we sing about the empty tomb for you to put up uh, Satan zero, Jesus one. That would have been really cool. Uh, we'll do it for next time. Next time the Chiefs play at 8 o'clock in the morning, we'll do that. Hey, uh, good morning. Glad you are with us today. Uh, Very excited to get back to the book of Acts. We are in Acts uh, chapter 16. We're going to do the last half of 16 today. I want to thank Rob again. A couple of weeks ago, he preached through uh, the first half of Acts 16. Uh, Did a great job. I appreciate him doing that so much. And uh, God's just really blessed us with other men who can proclaim God's word and and I can speak the truth, and I'm, I'm excited to have them around me, uh, supporting me and helping me and all those kind of things, and so just being a, a really teammates. Today we're going to talk about uh, the jail worship experience. Now, I was thinking about this uh, this week, and I, I reminded me of a story about a guy who uh, had embezzled some money uh, from his company, not a lot of money, but enough money that the judge wanted to make a, a, a you know, a, a, you know, just a, uh, so what I'm looking for, a model of him anyway. And uh, uh, basically he said, uh, you know, you're going to get six months in, the, in prison. This guy thought for just embezzling a little bit of money, six months in prison, that's, that's pretty steep. Uh, but he was, he was going into the prison, uh, they were taking him in, and uh, he, he was walking in, he was a little scared, you know, this wasn't his, uh, his thing. And uh, he took him into his cell and said, on the bed was this ginormous, bald man with tattoos on both arms, you know, and he looked at him and said, what kind of crime did you commit? What'd you do to get in here? And the man said, well, it was just a, a white-collar crime. And the man said, yeah, me too. Oh, he was so relieved to hear that, you know. And then the man looked at him and said, how many priests did you kill? It's a white-collar crime. Hey, how about those uh, royals, huh? Yeah. See, I posted this morning on my Facebook, I said to all my pastor friends, if you uh, tell a joke today and it doesn't go over, just say, hey, how about them royals? Crowd will cheer, it'll all be over with, they'll forget the joke. So I might do that a couple of times today. Well, listen, we want to talk about the jail worship experience. Now, most pastors would refer to this section of scripture as the story about the Philippian jailer. 
uh, because it is a story with a Philippian jailer in it, and it talks about him getting saved and everything. Oh, man, I just ruined the ending. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but, but I think it's the, the key to this whole passage is not what happens after the prison experience. It's really what happens in the prison experience, I think, where we can really draw uh, some things for ourselves that will be meaningful. So let's start in Acts chapter 16. Uh, we're going to read verses 16 through 18 and see what it says. It says, as we were going to the place of prayer, by the way, this is uh, Paul and Silas and Luke, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. And so we see here the first thing that happens uh, it, well, is that uh, Paul delivers a demon-possessed girl. Now, I want to show, uh, remind you where we're at, okay? Because we're in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey. If you remember, uh, he started here at Antioch. He was sent out by Antioch, and he came here uh, through Tarsus and Derby and Lystra and Iconium. And then he, his goal was to move up here into Asia. But God stopped him twice. The Holy Spirit kept him from moving into Asia. And as he made his way to Troas, this is where he got the Macedonian call. He had a dream and a vision of a man saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So here's Macedonia. This is part of Europe. And so he went uh, over here uh, to Macedonia. And Philippi is one of the first great cities that he was at. This is where he is in this particular uh, point. So Paul delivers this demon-possessed girl. Now, the girl is making quite a bit of money for her handlers or owners by predicting the future and kind of finding lost things. That's kind of what they did. When it says she had a, a, a spirit of divination, she was able to uh, uh, speak the future or know the future to some degree, or at least she uh, professed that. And so people would come to her uh, as a fortune teller, and she would tell them what was going to happen. She would also help them find lost things. So if you, you know, lost your, you know, whatever, uh, your button, uh, she would help you find it. She would tell you where it's at, and you would go and look for it. So anyway, this is what this lady did. And this demon inside her is talking uh, to Paul and Silas and, and, and Luke, and he's, she's basically following them around, and she's saying, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, I want to spend just a second talking about what she said. Isn't it interesting that the demons can't speak lies about God in his presence? They speak the truth. And so the demon inside her can only speak what's true about Paul and Silas. Uh, the demon says, these men are servant of the Most High God. Now, to us, that's just kind of a normal way of talking about God. But in this culture, there are many gods. There are many different kinds of gods that do all different things. And to them, this was really a, a big statement. These men are, are from the Most High God. The one big, one true God over everything else. God over every other God. These men are from the one true God. And... They come here to tell you about the way of salvation. Now, that's important. Because the demon doesn't say a way to salvation. It's singular. The demon is coming, or the demon has said, these men have come to tell you the way of salvation. The one way of salvation. Jesus Christ. 
So this demon is doing this. Now, you might think at first, wow, this is great. This free advertising. You know, I, Paul's just walking around and he's got this lady behind him saying, hey, these men are for the most high God and they're telling you the way of salvation. I would think that's kind of cool. You know, she's, but she's doing this day after day after day. And they're trying to, you know, they were going to a place of prayer and this woman is just screaming these things behind them. And so they're doing different things during the day. And while this may be some good free advertising for these men, uh, Paul eventually gets tired of it, and he rebukes her and casts out the demon. Now you would think, wow, at that point, wouldn't everybody just be really thrilled for her? I mean, she's had this demon in her possessing her and, and, and doing all these, uh, this spirit of divination and all these uh, fortune-telling and all this stuff she was doing that doesn't please God. Now she's free from this. Everybody should be happy, right? Let's see what happens in verses 19 through 24. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in, attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And so we see here that Paul and Silas are unjustly beaten and imprisoned. When Paul delivered the best source of income for these handlers, man, they reacted. They weren't happy for this woman. They saw a source of income was being taken away from them. They were worried about their money. They didn't care about her, and they were angry. They were incredibly angry that he had gone and delivered this woman, and now uh, their income's gone. Notice they tell half-truths about the men. They say, these men are Jews. That's true. Didn't mention the fact that they were also Roman citizens. Paul was a complete, full Roman citizen. Didn't say that about them. In fact, he lied about them and said that they're doing things that Romans shouldn't be doing. That's not true. Paul wouldn't do that. But the crowd joins in. The kind of a mob mentality. As these guys uh, continue to you know, whip up the mob, they just, just mob mentality ensues. And finally, the magistrates, the judges basically say, you know, rip their clothes off and beat them with rods. So they would take either metal or wooden uh, sticks and basically just beat these men. They would beat them down. They, they beat them black and blue. They sometimes would kill men through this process, but they beat them to a pulp. And then the jailer is ordered to imprison them safely. Did you see that word in the scripture? Imprison them safely. What that means is that they're to be put into the inner jail so that they can't possibly escape. Uh, in the jails in this day, they usually had kind of an outer circle for the, for the folks that weren't at much risk of, of escaping. But there was an inner part of the jail uh, that they would put them in that was incredibly secure. And when they use this word safely, uh, the jailer understood exactly what he was to do. He understood that uh, if these prisoners escaped, he would lose his life. 
So when they said, you put these men into prison safely, you make sure they are safely kept or you're going to die. That's what he heard. He said, it said that they put uh, uh, their feet in stocks. Now it looks something like this. This is not an actual photograph of Paul and Silas. Uh, but, but it's similar to what they would be in. Basically, they'd be put them into some kind of stocks like this so that they couldn't get their, their feet out. All right, It would be tight around their ankles, and they wouldn't be able to get their feet out. So these men are locked into this inner prison. It's got four walls surrounding it, one door in, one door out. And their feet are in these stocks. They are secured incredibly safely. There's really no possible means of escape for them. Now, let's put ourselves in their shoes for just a second. If that happened to you or I, what would we do? Now, I don't know about you. I'd probably pray a little. But I'd be strategizing and figuring out what, what are we going to do to get out of here? How, how do we get the best attorney? How do, and by the way, there was, no, there was no legal trial. How do we get out of this thing? How do we uh, legally figure our way out of this mess? We've got to get out of here. Let's look and see what their strategy was in verses 25 and 26. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Now this was not a strategy of escape for them. It was just a lifestyle. We're in a horrible situation. What do we do? Do we panic? Do we strategize? Do we try to figure out what to do? We pray. And we sing. We worship. Uh, they, what we have done for just the last half hour here, that's what they did. So they sang hymns of praise to God. In fact, they were singing loud enough that the rest of the prison outside the inner prison could hear them. And they continued to sing without shame. And then this earthquake happens. Now, I'm sure this was just a coincidence. It just kind of happened at the same time that this was going on, right? Well, let's talk about that for a minute because uh, I know in this part of the country we don't know a lot about earthquakes and we know a lot about tornadoes. We can tell you how those happen and what happens when those are, are you know, happen. Uh, when we were in the Philippines uh, a couple of weeks ago and the, the big super typhoon hit, I, I was a little freaked out because I'm like, I've never been in a typhoon. I don't know what they do. Now, give me a good old tornado any day. I'm okay. I know what to do. But this earthquake happens, and, and usually in a situation with an earthquake, uh, if a door is closed... It doesn't fly open. It, usually the building shifts and the door gets jammed so it can't be opened. What happens is people can't get out of buildings. And yet here, all the doors fly open. Now, if you remember the picture of the little kids in the, uh, the ankle stocks, uh, it says that all of their bonds fell off of them. So the earth shakes and these things just fall off their legs. Now, that doesn't make any sense. This is not a coincidence. This is not some kind of happenstance thing that just happens because it does. This is a miraculous event from God releasing these men. The doors flew open and all their chains fell off. Not the typical result of an earthquake. Now again, let's put ourselves in their, in their position. If that were you and I, what would you do? I know what I would do. 
I would run as fast as I could. Now, I know you're looking at me. You're going, well, I bet you can't run very fast. But I'll tell you what. You put a guy behind me with the sword. I think you'll find out how fast I can run. Now, I might not be very far before I collapse, but I'll run fast. I'll run fast. What do these men do? Let's see in verses 27 through 34 what they do. Oh, sorry. Uh, I know all of you that fill in blanks. This will freak you out if you don't fill that in. Paul and Silas worship their way to freedom. Whew. Thought you missed that one, didn't you? That was going to bother you all afternoon. Let's see what happens now. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Here we see that the Philippian jailer and his whole household become Christ's followers. Now let's look at this piece of scripture for a second. The, the jailer comes and he assumes the worst. Keep in mind they don't have street lights. They don't have all these you know, kind of modern things. It's very dark. He assumes as soon as he sees the jail, he assumes the worst that the prisoners have escaped. He knows if they have, he will die a, uh, a long, brutal death at the hand of, hands of the magistrates. So he draws his sword to end it quickly. And Paul stops him and says, don't do that, we're still here. Now I would have loved to have seen the jailer's face right at that moment. To know that they were still there and his life was not in jeopardy. The jailer asks the right question. You know, many times as we look at the scripture, I'll even say, man, they asked the wrong question. They're asking the wrong question here. They're asking the wrong question. He asked the right question. He says, men, what must I do to be saved? He doesn't say, why didn't you run away? He doesn't say, where are you going now? What are you going to do? He, didn't, he said, men, what must I do to be saved? He knew this was a miraculous event. He knew that they were connected to the one true God. And he says, men, what must I do to be saved? Paul responds. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus, you and your household will be saved. Now, let's talk about this statement because it can be confusing. This is not a statement of universal salvation or salvation by proxy. It doesn't mean if the man will be a believer in, in Christ that all of his family will automatically be saved. That's not what he's saying. What it's a statement about is that the normative thing in this culture is that the man has influence on his household to lead them. In other words, 99.99% of the time in this culture, how the man leads the family is how the family goes. We could take a lesson from that. Man, I want to speak to you just for a moment kind of a little rabbit trail that I intend to do. This is a challenge for us as men to be the spiritual leaders of our home. 
How we lead is how our family will follow. Our wives and our children are looking for good godly fathers and husbands to lead them, and if they will, they will follow. This is a normative thing in this culture. It's not a normative thing in our culture. In fact, in our culture, there's a lot of people that think that you should just let your kids find out their own spiritual formation. Let them, uh, let them grow up and figure it out themselves. Folks, there is no dumber uh, strategy in the world than that. I, I, I don't mean to be rude or mean. I'm just saying, I just can't think of anything less smart than saying, I'm not going to lead my children spiritually. I'm going to let them figure it all out for themselves. Really? Come on, think about that. Think about that. Folks, I know that we can't force our kids, especially when they get to be 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. I, I know you can't force them to have your faith. But I'm convinced, I'm convinced that the majority of the time, and the scripture uh, confirms it, that if we will raise our children to know and love God, if we will model that for them, if we will lead them in that, if we will tell them, hey, I know you don't like going to church on Sunday morning, but you don't like going to school Monday, I make you go to that, so you're going to church too. I know I'm going to sound like my, <laughs> my father, but, you know, guys, we, if you're living in my house, you're going to do what I say. I'm going to be the leader. Men, lead your families, okay? You lead them to be, you, you be a good a Jesus follower and a loving leader, and they will follow you. And that's what uh, is being done here. He's saying, listen, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you and your whole household will come and become saved also. And that's exactly what happens. In fact, the jailer takes them to his house. He feeds them. He, he ministers to their wounds. He listens to them. And the jailer and his whole house, if you look in the, in the passage there, it says they all believed. It wasn't his belief that saved the others. They all believed. And they became Christ's followers. Wow, what a challenge. What happens next? I mean, what do you do next? What if you're the jailer? Okay, so I was given the task to keep these guys uh, safe and secure in the prison or I would be killed. Uh, now they're at my house eating dinner and I've just fixed the bandaged their wounds and now I've just uh, gone to their side of this uh, whole argument. What do we do now? What's going to happen next? Let's look and see. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. It could have ended right there, but I love this next section. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison, and they visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. I love this because... What happens through this earthquake, this miraculous situation is everybody realizes these men are connected to the Most High God. 
the very thing that this demon-possessed girl was saying about them is true. They are connected to the Most High God, and they are telling us the way of salvation. So we see here in this passage that Paul and Silas receive freedom and also vindication. And actually a little game ensues uh, between Paul and the magistrates. You know, the magistrates are kind of doing this thing of, oh man, we should have never done this. I just want this all to go away. Hey, send word to these guys that they just need to get out of here. We'll just let them go. Get out. Go on. You know, uh, pretend like nothing ever happened. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. We're not doing that. We're not sneaking out of town. You guys brought us before the public. You beat us. You humiliated us. You imprisoned us. We're not just sneaking out of town. Especially when they found out these guys were Roman citizens, they realized that they had actually broken the law, their own law, by putting them in prison without a trial. And so they actually came to them and apologized. They said, guys, we're, we're sorry. We, we, <laughs> we did the wrong thing here. And then they asked them to leave. Did you get that? They didn't tell them to leave. They asked them. I would have loved it. I wish uh, uh, we could have the exact words. Pretty please, would you guys go now? <laughs> please go. And Paul says, yeah, we'll go. First, we're going to go over here and visit Lydia, spend some time with her. And then we're going to go over here and visit the other brothers that are here and encourage them for a while. And then when we're ready, we'll leave. I kind of like that attitude. I don't know why. It's just that the fact that uh, these guys all realize now that these guys are God followers. They are true believers. They are the ones who are following the one true God. So what are the application takeaways for us? The chance of us ever being in prison with our feet in ankle stocks is probably slim. The chance of God ever rescuing us through an earthquake out of a prison is even slimmer. What are the applications for us? Well, here's what I think they are. The first one is this. Choose worship rather than complaining when faced with difficult situations. Here's what I found in life. Almost everybody falls in one, or two, one of two categories. They're either worshipers or they're complainers. And there's not much in between. What I mean by that is our, pers- our perspective on things. We, we just talked about a whole series of that, about our perspective. Our perspective changes everything about the way we view life. And especially the way we view difficult circumstances. Some people, every situation that comes, they just complain. It's just, they just complain, complain, complain. Everything's bad, everything's wrong, I got a raw deal in life, you know, on and on they go. And others find a way to worship God and have a positive outlook no matter what the situation is. This week, I, uh, I was asked to do a funeral of an 11-year-old boy who passed away with brain cancer. He had uh, two bouts of it where he had some remission, and then the third bout of it uh, took his life. When they called and asked me to do the funeral, I I was troubled by it. I knew that his parents didn't attend church anywhere. I didn't know what his spiritual condition was, and and, uh, I'm not the kind of person that lies at funerals. I won't say, because he was a sweet little boy, he's in heaven. 
I won't say, because he got a raw deal and was sick, he's in heaven. I won't say, because all of you that are here loved him so much, he's in heaven. I won't say those things, because they're not true. I'll only say that a person goes to heaven if they have received Christ as their Savior. Now, what, uh, through some investigating, uh, one of the pastors from Antioch Bible Baptist Church called me as a friend of mine. He said, hey, Michael, I understand you're doing Caden's uh, funeral. I said, yes, I am. He said, I want to tell you a story about what happened. Some friends of his brought him to our church at a children's event. And at that event, they did a little drama about this man being in court. And the judge sentenced the man for his sin to spend an eternity separated from God. And when the judge sentenced him, somebody else jumped up in the courtroom and said, Hey, I'll take his place. I'll pay for his sin for him. A judge allowed him to do that. And that, of course, was Jesus Christ. After this uh, drama, they asked if there was anyone there that would like to commit their life to Christ. Was there anybody there who realized they were a sinner, realized they couldn't pay for their own sin, realized somebody had to pay for it, and Jesus did that on the cross? And by faith and trust, trusting what he did, you can receive forgiveness of your sins. Is there anybody who would like to do that? Little Caden raised his hand. And somebody came and counseled with him, and prayed with him, and led him to Jesus. And I thanked uh, Pastor Todd from Antioch for calling me. I said, this is a whole different perspective on his funeral. Now listen, there were some people there that were probably still angry and frustrated, were complaining, and I'm not talking about grief, guys. I, I get it, okay? I get it. But, but there's probably some people there that were still just angry and frustrated about everything. And those are probably the people that complain about everything. But what I tried to share was, I've got a different perspective because I know Jesus. I'm a worshiper, not a complainer, at least most of the time. (laughs) And I shared how Caden had received Christ as his Savior and how I knew for a fact, not because he was a sweet little boy, but because he gave his life to Jesus, I knew for a fact that he was in heaven with God and his son, Jesus Christ. Now, folks, that was a celebration. He is better off than any of us are today. We should be happy about that, excited about that, okay? And so uh, I want you to understand here, folks, we get to choose whether we're going to be a worshiper in every situation or whether we're going to be a complainer in every situation. Now, I know some of you in this room are going through a tough time right now. And for those of you who aren't, tomorrow's coming, or the next day. We're all, listen, we all are going to experience tough things in this life. But folks, if you decide to be a worshiper instead of a complainer, you're going to see God do miraculous things that you couldn't scheme, you couldn't strategize, you couldn't create on your own. He's just going to do them for you, just like this earthquake. These men didn't think uh, logically in their minds, hey, you know, I think if we pray hard enough and sing loud enough, God's going to give us an earthquake. They weren't thinking that way. They were just, they were just loving God because that's who they are. That's what they did. And God worked through that. So listen, today, choose, choose 
to be a worshiper rather than a complainer. And the last thing I want you to see today is that evangelism grows out of true worship. You know, the jailer asked an important question. And by the way, this is where the conversation started. Okay? Uh, Paul didn't say to the jailer when he got there, hey, listen, why don't we go to Panera and I'll sit down and I'll share the gospel with you and you can pray to receive Jesus. It wasn't that way. The whole conversation started this way. Men, what do I have to do to be saved? Now, when's the last time somebody asked you that? Or us that? Here's the point. When people see us being true worshipers, especially through difficult and tough circumstances of life, they're going to say to us, wow, how do you do that? How can I get that? How can, I, how can I be like you? I think the problem sometimes is, at least this is what I was thinking this week, maybe I'm not as good of a worshiper as I really think I am. Maybe I need to focus a little more on worshiping instead of complaining. Because I can't remember the last time a person came to me and said, hey, Michael, I see your life. I just want to know, what do I have to do to be saved? It's a challenge. It's a challenge for me. It should be a challenge for you unless you have that happening quite a bit. But folks, this man realized uh, that these men loved God, that they had a connection. People should see by our lives that we're connected to the one true God. I think that's a challenge for all of us. We need to be ready to respond to them. But folks, we should live in such a way that people come and ask us, what do I have to do to get what you've got? I see the transformation in your life. How do I get that? I see the peace you have, even though you're going through this difficult circumstance. Uh, I see that you've lost your job, but you're still uh, dependent on God, and you're not worried about it. How do you do that? I see you've got a bad uh, uh, report from the doctor. How, How are you all at peace about that? I see your kids are out of control and you're, you know, you're, you're having a hard time with them. But you seem to be at peace with that. How do you do that? Folks, I think when people see us be good worshipers in light of difficult situations in life, they're going to ask the question, how do you do that? The challenge for me today is to think about how I live and maybe I should change some things so that more conversations start out. Michael, what do I have to do to be saved? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel, the simple truth of the gospel, that we are sinners, that we can't do anything about our sin ourselves, but Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins. And by putting our faith and trust in him and him alone, we can receive forgiveness of our sins and be saved. Father, I pray if there's anyone in this room today who has not crossed that line of faith, that you would impress upon their hearts today the importance of that. The realization that that's the only determining factor that will determine their eternity. 
Father, give them the courage to check that box on the back of the, of the card and, and turn it in or to talk to one of the pastors before they go or, or to the friend they came with and, and just uh, ask the questions where they can know beyond a shadow of a doubt, like little Caden, that when they die, they'll go to heaven. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the challenge it gives us. God, forgive me for living sometimes as a complainer. Forgive me for sometimes living a a life that doesn't cause people to ask, what must I do to be saved? Father, help all of us to grow in our worship, living a life of worship, not just coming on Sunday morning to do worship, but to be good worshipers all throughout our lives. Father, help us to be good, uh, uh, good at sharing the gospel, not only through our words, but through our lives. Father, we're dependent on you. We can do nothing of any eternal value without you. And so we ask you to lead us, guide us. Father, we pray that you will help us to yield more to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.